is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. G'day there, my name is Dan Fitzgerald and welcome to the Country Hour this Friday lunchtime. Great to have you along for the program. Well, Natasha Files was elected as the leader of the Territory Labor Party at a caucus meeting earlier this morning. She will soon be sworn in as the NT's new Chief Minister. It comes, of course, after the shock resignation of Michael Gunner after he handed down his budget on Tuesday. Natasha Files, she is due to give a press conference at any moment now from Parliament House in Darwin. As soon as that starts, uh, we will bring you the words from the Chief Minister. And as I look up right now, she is right about to speak. Uh, let's take the Chief Minister, the new Chief Minister, Thank Tasha you. Files now. It's wonderful to be here with you this morning and I would like to acknowledge the Larrakia people and pay my respects to the Elders past, present and emerging. I thank them for their custodianship and deep history of looking after these lands. I would like to acknowledge our Green Chief Minister, Michael Gunner. He served the Territory well. He put his heart and soul into the job and we are grateful that our government can continue to count on his experience and advice. This morning I asked my caucus colleagues to support me as the new leader for Territory Labor and they have given me their support. I have been selected as a unanimous choice as leader for Territory Labor. This afternoon I will visit Her Honour the Administrator at Government House and be sworn in as Chief Minister of the Northern Territory. I want to thank my colleagues for their support today for the way we have conducted ourselves as a team this week. We've had passionate but respectful discussions. We have each put our views forward, but we have stuck together and we will continue to do so. We've sorted this out quickly. We're going to keep our focus on the real job, the job of delivering for Territorians. I'm very proud to be elected as Territory Labor leader. I first joined the Labor Party in 1993 as a 15-year-old. I am the daughter of two teachers, a teacher myself. My partner and Paul and I are now raising our two children, Ollie and Henry, here in the Territory because it is the best place in the world. I'm a Territory girl through and through. I've put my hand up to serve because I love this place. I want to work every day to make it better. I've been in Parliament for nearly a decade. I've served on the opposition front bench as a Cabinet Minister and as Leader of Government Business. I'm ready for this job and I will hit the ground running. In terms of the rest of the team, all the other portfolios will remain the same for the next week during the parliamentary sittings. Our focus is Territorians. And following that, a new leadership team and a new cabinet will be sworn in. And of course there will be some changes. But this government's stability, this government's unity will be our focus. We're focused on creating more jobs right across the Northern Territory. We're focused on growing the economy so it benefits all Territorians, tackling those hard social challenges that the Territory faces. Territorians, my focus, our focus is you. You are our priority. It's been a big week. When I was standing on the sidelines at soccer last week out at Bagot Oval, I certainly didn't expect the week to end this way. It's a bit of a shock, but it's an absolute privilege. I do not take this responsibility lightly. And finally, I can say, I've had a front row seat to this job for five and a half years, working closely with both Michael and Nicole. I know it's a tough job, but I'm pretty tough. I'm territory tough. There'll be easy days, there'll be hard days. I can't promise every day to make you happy. I can't fix every problem overnight, but I can guarantee this. I will listen to you. 
I will always work my hardest for you and I'll always put the territory first. I'm joined today by Deputy Chief Minister Nicole Madison. We've been together through thick and thin, five babies, nearly 10 years in Parliament together. And I'm very grateful for her support and I'll ask her to say a few words before I'm happy to take any questions. Thank you. Well, thank you, Chief Minister Natasha Files. I want to give my full congratulations to Natasha and I am just so proud of her today. I've had the great privilege to serve with her my whole parliamentary career. And what I can tell you about your new Chief Minister is that you have got somebody who loves this place, who is so committed to the Northern Territory, who is tenacious, hardworking, determined, and she is going to make a huge difference. I see the passion she gives every day to her job uh, for the people of Nightcliff, but right across the Northern Territory too. So I'm absolutely thrilled to have Natasha as the new Chief Minister. The team is united and we're thrilled to have her there in the job too. And I think Natasha's going to do an amazing job. So uh, we're looking forward to seeing Natasha um, lead our team, particularly going into 2024. And uh, it's going to be a big, big week in Parliament next week, but I know Natasha's first and foremost is determined to make sure that we're delivering for Territorians every day. So again, it's great to hand over to Chief Minister Natasha Files. <laughs> That is Nicole Madison there. She's the Deputy Chief Minister. And we just heard from the new Northern Territory Chief Minister, who will be officially sworn in a little bit later this afternoon by the Administrator, Vicky O'Halloran. So, Natasha Files. She was voted in by the NT Labor Party at a caucus meeting in Darwin earlier today. She is the new Chief Minister. Um, she's just taking questions from the media now and you'll be hearing more from her across ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory throughout the day. Stay tuned to coverage online as well. If you jump onto ABC News, you can uh, read more about the election from uh, the Northern Territory's newest Chief Minister by the Labor Party after Michael Gunner, of course, resigned earlier this week. G'day, I'm Brad Inglis from Sturt Plain Station, south of Dunmara on the Stuart Highway, and you're listening to the NT Country Hour. Well, let's turn our attention now to the foot and mouth disease outbreak in Indonesia. The sound you're hearing here is from a video from a farm in Indonesia and it shows cattle in stalls some of which are lying on their sides they're unable to get up and they're breathing quite hard others are, are sitting down and they're being hand fed while there are some other cattle that are doing okay and standing up and the sick cattle they are believed to be infected with foot and mouth disease after there was an outbreak confirmed in Indonesia just a sh just last week uh, and it's an issue that has Australia's agricultural sector on edge. Uh, the country's chief vet, Dr Mark Ship, he's actually in Darwin today and he's giving briefings on this Indonesian outbreak to Industry Head and what's being done to make sure foot and mouth disease doesn't come into Australia. So just what is happening on the ground in Indonesia? Ross Ainsworth is a respected vet who's worked across northern Australia for decades and he's also spent a lot of time in Indonesia 
and he's currently in Bali. Uh, and he says, sadly, foot and mouth disease is more than likely still on the move in the country. It's now spreading around the, uh, the city of Surabaya in East Java and it's spread some hundreds of kilometres. I'm just looking at a map with some dots on it where the, uh, uh, where the cases have been reported. That's probably uh, close to a week old by now. And it's, yeah, it's spread hundreds of kilometres from where the first case was, which was north of Surabaya, and it's probably nearly 100 kilometres south of Surabaya now. Uh, well, that's the, the last case on the map, so it may well be another 100 kilometres out by today. Australia's chief vet, Dr Mark Ship, uh, he said it's also been found in Aceh in North Sumatra as well, so it's uh, across two different islands. Uh, just how difficult does that make the situation? Well, any, any additional spread just complicates it for sure. Uh, but the, the Surabaya outbreak is, is the most important one for Australia because it's so close to Bali. It's about 800 kilometres from Surabaya to Bali and you can drive it in the car uh, because there's uh, from the uh, tip of East Java to Bali, there's a, a, a narrow strait. You can see uh, each uh, place from the other side. It's only a couple of kilometres across, and uh, there are ferries that just take cars across. So uh, during the, the national holidays here, which was last week, uh, there were large numbers of people from Surabaya and other parts of Java had driven their cars here. The, the cars have uh, distinctive numbers on and uh, letters on their plates to tell you where they come from. So there are a lot of cars here last week from Surabaya, so it's, it's fairly nerve-wracking and worrying that this could easily arrive here in Bali very soon. And what would it mean if foot and mouth disease got into Bali? Well, the real, the scary part, from my perspective, is that Bali has suddenly become the, Australia's favourite uh, external tourism place and uh, Bali cattle uh, are all over Bali, including in the tourist areas. So if there are infected, uh, if Bali becomes infected, then it will be a very easy for tourists, even in the main tourist areas, uh, to come across cattle because the Balinese have their cattle all over the place on vacant blocks and uh, there is potential for, for tourists to become infected by simply walking around the tourist areas. If they go home with some uh, infected materials, say some saliva or something on their, on their shoes, then they're risking the disease entering Australia. So it's pretty scary. What sort of response is happening on the ground in Indonesia? Look, I don't have that information. There is, it's been suggested, been uh, the document that I've, the most recent document I've got suggests that they, are, they have sort of uh, uh, closed the areas off to to uh, in and out traffic, and they have uh, you know been disinfecting and uh, perhaps slaughtering some of the, uh, the sick animals. There's not a lot they can do until they get vaccine. So uh, the process is uh, you send you send the uh, virus samples of the virus off to reference laboratories and i i understand from the documents that that the ones they've sent it to is the perbright laboratory in the uk they will say okay this this virus is strain abc whichever strain it is 
And the best vaccine for you is vaccine <clears throat> number two. So the whole world, there's about seven or more strains of the virus. And there are very specific vaccines for specific strains. And so once they know here what strain they have, then they'll be able to identify which vaccine they need and then bring it in. Once they get the vaccine, which it might take two or three weeks or even longer to get, actually get the vaccine on the ground and then start vaccinating in, in a circle, you know, a, a widening circle around the, around the outbreak and try to pull it up that way. Do you think Indonesia's got a good chance of isolating it and, and controlling this outbreak? Difficult question. The first case, according to the document I've, I've received... That's the public uh, document about the outbreak. The first case was seen, they call it the index case, on between the 12th and the 14th of April. So if that, ca if that cow was, was uh, infected and then shedding virus, then it would have been uh, potentially uh, uh, spreading uh, virus through any, any of the contacts uh, in that location. Now, the nasty part, is or the, the inconvenient, uncomfortable part is that the national holiday, the end of Ramadan was the 1st of May and the first day of Labaran, the national holiday, was the first, uh, 2nd of May and everyone goes home to visit their families at that time. It's the equivalent of Christmas in Australia. So during the period that this uh, virus was active but not not recognised, that didn't get recognised and confirmed until the 28th, there was a two-week period during which would have been the major period of the year of movement of not only people going home to visit their families, but during that time animals are moved to populations because they, they'll be there for, for slaughter for the festival. So the, the animals are brought to population centres they're fattened up over the year and then they're brought to wherever the target population is and then they, they are slaughtered for the, uh, the peak festival period. So the worst po this, this disease broke out at the worst possible time of maximum opportunity for spread. So uh, it could have gone, goodness knows, anywhere. It could be in Bali already. It could have gone everywhere. If you're just tuning in, this is The Country Hour. My name is Dan Fitzgerald and you're on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory and you're hearing from Ross Ainsworth, a respected vet who's worked a, a long time in Northern Australia and is currently based in Indonesia. For a lot of poor farmers in Indonesia, <coughs> a, a cow is a really big investment. They can see it sort of as, as their savings bank. Do you think that's going to lead to any reluctance in terms of shooting and burning livestock which is often seen as a one of the only ways to to effectively get rid of this disease uh, absolutely right it's their it's like their house it's their asset as well as their their pet and uh they're really fond of their animals as well as uh uh recognizing that that they're very valuable to them the other aspect of course is compensation these animals are extremely valuable we're even more valuable they're slightly more expensive than australian cattle so they're about six bucks a kilo round numbers and uh, those uh, uh, slaughter animal here is going to be five 500 kilos so that's three thousand aussie dollars 
and the government just doesn't have that much money to be to be uh, giving full compensation. So they, it's unlikely they'll be able to offer full compensation, and so therefore it's unlikely they'll be able to slaughter these animals. So a vaccine is their real option. Just two months ago, Indonesia confirmed the detection of lumpy skin disease. There's now been this outbreak of foot and mouth. What's the Indonesian government's capacity like to deal with two serious livestock diseases outbreaks at the same time? Yeah, well, it's uh, it's as you'd imagine. There, the government's resources are limited. Their, their financial resources are limited, uh, given all of these issues that need to be dealt with, even uh, with the big population there. Their physical resources of numbers of staff and motor cars, uh, everything are, are limited. So uh, yeah, they're in they're in serious trouble, and especially if it's if it's spread so far and wide, and they're dealing with two two diseases at once. Yeah, it's it's a it's a huge headache. What do you see as the bigger risk to Australia: lumpy skin or foot and mouth? Well. Foot and mouth is the, the most frightening disease, or one of the most frightening diseases I've ever seen. Uh, and I did see it in Australian cattle in a feedlot in Vietnam where they're infected. But when you do get it, it, it is spectacularly infective and damaging to the animals. They can't stand and they, and they can't walk to their food and they can't eat and drink. So you end up with a lot of very, very sick animals. But if it did get into Australia, whilst the damage would be horrific and the costs unbelievable, it would be possible and relatively easy to eradicate because you simply vaccinate around it and uh, you can eradicate it. Outrageously expensive and damaging, but you can get rid of it. Whereas a virus like lumpy skin disease that's spread by insects your options are very limited and not particularly effective, especially right now when the vaccines that are available are pretty ordinary uh, and not, not particularly ideal for, for dealing with it in a, in a country where you want to remove the disease because it's a live vaccine. So it's a real toss-up. They're both horrendous, absolutely horrendous. So it's a very frightening time. The worst part right now is that is that this this uh, foot and mouth disease is so close to Bali and so many travelling tourists. So right now, that is the biggest threat. Ross Ainsworth, he is a vet who's worked for a long time across the live export trade in northern Australia. He's now based in Bali, speaking there about the threat of foot and mouth disease after the outbreak in that country. If you want to read more on this story, uh, you can jump online right now and search for ABC Rural. And as part of that story, you can see some footage of cattle in Indonesia there that have foot and mouth disease. It's not a very pleasant sight, but it uh, shows you the extent to which cattle are being impacted by this terrible disease in that country. It is 10 minutes to one here on the country hour. You're on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. My name is Dan Fitzgerald. And today is Do It For Dolly Day. It's the charity run by Dolly's Dream. And it was set up following the tragic death of NT teenager Amy Dolly Everett, who was living on a station in the top end. And Dolly's parents, they wanted to help stamp out bullying and create a positive, a lasting legacy to their daughter. And it's become a cause that the whole of rural Australia has really got behind. And blue has become synonymous with 
that charity. Blue was, of course, Dolly's favourite colour. I've got my blue shirt on today. And last night, landmarks across Australia were lit up with blue lighting. We're talking about in the big cities of Canberra, Melbourne, Brisbane, and the convention centre in Darwin. To mark the day, uh, here's a bit of Meg Everett's Meg Everett. She is Dolly's sister. Hi, I'm Meg Everett, Dolly's big sister. I'm thrilled to launch this year's Do It For Dolly Day on Friday 13th of May. Once again, we're seeing hundreds of communities across Australia embrace our message to be kind. Dress in blue, fundraise and say no to bullying. No one deserves to be bullied. Uh, We know that only about half of the teens who have been bullied online tell their parents about it. We also know that one in ten young people have been a target of hate speech. Some teens hide their experiences of online bullying so well that their families don't even know it's going on. So this Do It For Dolly Day, we're calling on teens and parents to have those tough conversations to end bullying. For more conversation starters, visit Dolly's Dream Parent Hub to find out more information. Thank you from my family and I for helping us to end bullying this Do It For Dolly Day. That is Meg Everett. She is the sister to Dolly. Now on Do It For Dolly Day, it's time now for a tune. Let's have some Tom Curtin and Sarah Sora. She was sitting on the bus. Come on, let's speak up. That is Tom Curtin there and Sarah Sora with Speak Up, even if your voice shakes. Today is Do It For Dolly Day and I know... There's businesses across the Territory that are supporting this charity. Uh, As I said, whole of rural Australia has got behind it. I know there's uh, Nutrien Harcourts in Catherine and Humpty Doo. They're all putting on sausage sizzles to try and help out this charity to stop bullying across Australia. And if you're just tuning in, this is The Country Hour. My name is Dan Fitzgerald and it is four minutes to one. Uh, Let's head to WA now where the state budget has just been handed down. Uh, Its finances, well, they're looking a lot better than the Northern Territories, which this year will be in deficit by $1.1 billion. Uh, WA, a very different story, though. Uh, Michelle Stanley is our rural reporter in Port Hedland. Uh, G'day, Michelle. Tell us about this massive surplus that WA has unveiled. Oh, yeah, it feels good. I've got quite sore shoulders, actually, you know, carrying the weight of the economy uh, from the iron ore port we have here in Port Hedland. But $5.7 billion is the surplus this year in WA, which is just eye-watering money. Um, Now, I mentioned that I'm sitting in Port Hedland. I'll call it the iron ore capital, given we do have the biggest bulk export port in the world. And it is that iron ore price and the, um, the amount of iron ore that we ship out mainly to China every single year that has been the difference here. So, Last year, the price was around 220 US dollars per ton, which is huge when it comes to you know profits for these iron ore miners and, and then bringing that into the royalties and the huge surplus for the WA budget. Um, iron ore prices have dropped since then, still sitting at about 130 US dollars per ton this week. But for context, the cost of production is somewhere between 15 to 30 bucks. So huge profits for the mining companies, which then leads to pretty good, as you've seen, surpluses for the WA state. You know, we're shipping out 50 million tonnes of, of iron ore out of Port Hedland alone each month. So you can see where it comes from. Um, the, lo- the longer term, the price is tipped to drop. Um, but at the moment, that is what is bringing in such huge wealth into WA. 
Okay, so a $5 billion surplus. Uh, what is WA Agriculture going to get out of all of that money? Well, there's a little bit, actually, which is nice to see it come back to the region. So there's some money for sort of wild dog control. There's money for the ports here as well to keep that expansion growing. But one of the big things, which will get a lot of people in the East Kimberley in particular excited, look, as long as I've been in the north, so six years now, um, there's been a certain Matt Brand and a few other pastoralists and some mining companies well talking about the need to seal the Tanami Road, to open it up to development, make life a bit easier for people in that part of the world and it's going to happen. So the WA state and the recent federal budget earlier this year as well, they've both committed to this project. It's about $500 million in total, so a fair lot of cash. And yeah, yesterday, $265 million was announced by the WA Treasurer and Premier Mark McGowan to sort of make up that 500 mil. So that'll seal the road from Halls Creek to the NT border. It's going to take about a decade. And given the supply and the worker shortages these days, I think that might even be a little bit hopeful, but we'll wait and see. Uh, from what I can tell, the East Kimberley folk are pretty excited. They see this as a, a bit of a game changer. Fantastic, because it's been my number one project for many, many, many years. I mean, even go back to the 90s, I was trying to think what could really, what's the goer for, for the Kimberley's Halls Creek? What's the real the real thing that we need? And I just thought, bitumized the town of my road. It's taken a long time. I've done two trips to Canberra um, advocating for it. So I even drove years ago, we drove to Alice Springs with a party of people in a bus and met with the Alice Spring Council, spoke to them about it. So, and, 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 and congratulations to the Kimberley Zone because they've stood, um, this is their number one project. When all the Shire presidents went to Canberra, they all advocated for Tanama Road. And I think without their help, uh, I don't know if we'd have been looking at this today. Malcolm Edwards, he's the president of the Halls Creek Shire. And just before him, you heard, heard from Michelle Stanley, our rural reporter in Port Hedland. Uh, some other budget announcements there from WA include $3.5 million for a Kununurra cotton gin. Uh, we're coming up to the one o'clock news here on the Country Hour. Still plenty of more to come after the one o'clock news. I'll speak to you in five minutes. My name's Nick Window. We uh, we live just south of Catherine. We run approximately 25 head of Damara sheep. Pretty well just keep them for ourselves. We fatten them up, we eat them. They're, yeah, very self-sufficient. And you're listening to the Northern Territory Country Hour. G'day there, my name is Dan Fitzgerald. You're on the Country Hour this Friday afternoon. Thanks a lot for joining me. Well, the Territory has a new Chief Minister, Natasha Files. She was elected by her Labor Party at a caucus meeting in Parliament earlier today. Uh, she's going to make it official this afternoon when she goes and visits Vicky O'Halloran, the administrator, to get sworn in. Uh, but here's a little bit of what Natasha Files had to say when she faced the press uh, about half an hour ago. Territorians, my focus, our focus is you. You are our priority. It's been a big week. When I was standing on the sidelines at soccer last week out at Bagot Oval, I certainly didn't expect the week to end this way. It's a bit of a shock, but it's an absolute privilege. I do not take this responsibility lightly. And finally, I can say, 
I've had a front row seat to this job for five and a half years, working closely with both Michael and Nicole. I know it's a tough job, but I'm pretty tough. I'm territory tough. There'll be easy days, there'll be hard days. I can't promise every day to make you happy. I can't fix every problem overnight, but I can guarantee this. I will listen to you. I will always work my hardest for you. And I'll always put the Territory first. That is Natasha Files, the Northern Territory's new Chief Minister-elect, I guess we're calling her until she gets sworn in. Um, in that press conference, Natasha Files says... She said that all cabinet positions, they will stay the same for the next week or so until the end of next week's parliamentary sittings, and then there'll be a bit of a reshuffle. So the question we're asking this afternoon on the Country Hour is, who should be the Ag Minister? It's currently Nicole Madison. Should she stick with the job, or would you like to see somebody else take the reins for Australia for the Northern Territory's Ag Industry? You can text us here at the Country Hour on 0487 991057. Who should be the Ag Minister when Natasha Files does a reshuffle next week? You can text us on 0487 991057. But it is time now to go head to the Weather Bureau to see what's happening outside. We've got Moses Rako with us today. G'day, Moses. How are you doing? I'm going well, thank you. That's the way. Uh, just looking at the radar, it looks like things are getting a bit wet out in Palmerston and the rural area. That's right. We have seen that uh, moisture return uh, across the good portion of the western top end there. So we have picked up some showers um, at Noonamah. has actually got the highest so far. There's some other rainfall amounts, of course, that have been picked up. But uh, 11 miles coming with 18 millimetres since 9am this morning. Uh, and to 24, the 24 hours total to 9am this morning, Mount Bundy uh, from sh- sh- thunderstorms and showers overnight during the evening period, they picked up about 50, 52 millimetres. So that's pretty good for May. Um, yeah, yeah, it sure is. Just looking at the radar, <laughs> that um, there's some red dots in there. Uh, it looks like it's pretty heavy. Um, if We'd love a, a rain report here on the country. If anybody's out and uh, got rain thundering down on the roof. Texas in how it is, 0487991057. Uh, Moses, is this sort of weather going to stick around? Yeah, look, that's, that, that is the case for the, uh, for the short term. We are, look, we couldn't, you can't even rule out a thunderstorm, in fact, um, over the Tiwis uh, or the northwestern parts of uh, the Daly District um, or actually northwestern parts of the Arnhem District over the weekend as well. Um, it basically we've the moisture is going to hang around. We might see another, I guess, a, a weaker southeasterly surge push through the territory um, from probably the weekend, uh, later in the weekend, and then it might get up into the top end, um, probably maybe Monday, Tuesday. And with that, we might see the humidity drop out a little um, during the afternoon period, maybe for Tuesday and Wednesday. Um, so it might dry out a little bit there uh, for the top end, that is. So till then, uh, probably seeing those, you know, a slight chance of seeing a shower um, about parts of the top end. Um, in the centre in the south, uh, ahead of this trough that we're expecting to move through, probably later or early tomorrow morning in the far southwestern Lassiter district, probably seeing uh, temperatures increasing ahead of that trough um, and then dropping 
down uh, again as it pushes through. So, um, and also, of course, that cloud band that's over WA at the moment is going to extend over um, the southern parts of uh, the Territory um, over the weekend. So there could be just a slight chance um, of, a, of a shower uh, or just some slight rainfall uh, in the southern parts as well. But it's only a very slight chance. And we're probably not expecting much rainfall from it. Uh, probably less than five millimetres we anticipate at this stage. That's for tomorrow. Yep. It's in the Lassiter district, yeah. Yeah, okay. And it looks like, yeah, with that, um, it's going to be warming up in the, in the centre there, 33 degrees um, tomorrow. That's right. So even seeing today's temperatures compared to yesterday, those temperatures uh, around Alice Springs up by about five degrees or six degrees, in fact, this time yesterday. So they're already seeing the, the temperatures warming there. Yalara is similar as well. Um, they're up at, sitting at 26 degrees at the moment, uh, actually getting up to 28, in fact. So definitely a warming trend's already begun um, in the southern parts and... Um, probably seeing it increasing even further ahead of that trough at Alice Springs getting into the low 30s. Um, Yalara probably seeing the temperature, maximum temperatures not getting quite as high because the, the trough might uh, begin to move through there sometime earlier tomorrow. Um, so yeah, max temperatures there, not as high. But you know, once that moves through on Sunday, probably seeing Alice Springs starting to cool down um, from Sunday okay, um... in that area. And for those in the top end who might be planning to get out in the boat and flick a line this weekend, how are coastal waters? Yeah, coastal waters are looking, well, pretty much south to southeast is the main direction there. Um, could get a little bit, um, well, actually, no, about 10 to 15 knots is broadly speaking across across the north and east coasts there is the expectation with those sea breezes coming in. Um, the Darwin Harbour itself uh, for the weekend, looking around about um, 10 knots or so um, with a northwesterly probably sea breeze coming in, but turn around south to southeasterly before that sea breeze. Um, and like I said, there is chance of a, of a shower and you can't rule out a, a thunderstorm as well around the harbour as well um, during the afternoon period there. Okay. Well, thanks for the update, Moses. Have a good afternoon. Thank you. That's Moses Rako there at the Weather Bureau and it is 12 minutes past one. This week on Landline, from a family farm to an Australian wine behemoth. The achievement's not just about economic or commercial success, it's about what the family's been able to achieve and what benefits that's brought to the district. And coming back from south-east Queensland's damaging floods. Yeah, can't even put it into words, just to say thank you, and it's made us want to get back and, and grow more. That's Landline, 12.30 Sunday on ABC TV. A 47-year-old man has been issued with a notice to appear in court in relation to cattle theft in Central Australia. It's alleged the man, who was on an Aboriginal land trust, stole cattle from a neighbouring station. Alan Martin from Mount Denison Station out to the northwest of Alice Springs says he called police when he found that five cattle, which he believed were his, had been shot and butchered for meat. I will, initially I went over just to, because we'd heard that we had cattle in the yards over there, so I went over just to inspect how many we had and look, just to work out how many trailers we need to pick them all up. And Then I just saw there was drag marks going out of the yard, so I thought I'd just have a look to see if it was one of mine that had died in the yard or something. But in the process I'd found, initially I saw two skulls and 
internal organs and that from where someone had got a killer. And then as I looked around, I just kept finding more and more, and I found five all up in total. But all of them except for one had had all their ears cut off. But the one that didn't have the ears cut off was one of ours that belonged to Mount Denison. What's the significance of the ears being removed? Well, generally, I imagine if you're removing the ears, you're trying to hide whose cattle they belong to to start with. So. But then on a place where it is, where it happened, that there's only really two places where the cattle would have come from. And so what, uh, what happened next? What, what did you do? We went to the police afterwards and made a report and that and sent all the pictures to them so they could have a look and hopefully something will come about of it. Can you describe, I guess, the, uh, the landscape of, of this place that you live on? I can't remember the exact size off the top of my head. I think it's like 2,500 square k's, kilometres. Yeah. Well, out where we are here, out in the 10 mile log, pretty isolated. We're 330 kilometres out of Alice Springs on a 2,500 square kilometre property and that so when animals do go missing or that if they have been slaughtered it does take a while to find them but then it depends on where they are and the location just because the sheer size of the place but sometimes yeah you can be lucky and just find them on the side of the roads or you can be mustering and just find the evidence just out of the blue but sometimes you could find it within hours or sometimes months. So Alan tell me um, how common is it for cattle to to wander what is that a daily thing for you is that part just part of living out here? Well, the way the landscape here is, the cattle do wander. Like you have your paddocks and your areas and that, and they're pretty big paddocks, so cattle have free range and pretty much go wherever they want until they hit a fence and then they turn around and come back. Is it, is it pretty, would it be on a, on a place this remote, would it be pretty easy to get away with, uh, I guess, what, what's been happening to you? Yeah, it is, because like, unless you catch somebody red-handed, you can't really prove it or that. So, and like I said, the size of the place, unless you've got hundreds of people patrolling every road, all hours of the day you're not going to catch anyone unless it's by sheer luck have you come across this sort of thing before yes yes we're constantly losing cattle to killers and that but not always having the ears cut out and that but a lot of them we find on mount denison close to boundary fences and internal roads now as well how much money um do you think all up you lost out of out of those five to seven head oh well, on average they're about two and a half to three thousand per beast so out of five they're probably looking at close to twenty or twenty-two thousand just out of those five. And what what does that mean to Mount Denison? Oh, that's a loss of just loss of productivity, really. So, and then mm-hmm. that's something we're not going to get back out of it. Can you give me an idea? Um, I guess you know, losing twenty-two thousand in in one fell swoop. What does that look like? What would you be spending that sort of money on? What does it allow you to do? Oh, it's a pretty big loss, depending on the number of cattle that go. Like, it doesn't matter how good your fences are, cattle are still going to push through them or find some way to go. So, but until you get them back from neighbouring properties, you never really know how many go or get eaten. That could be fuel or just maintenance repairs, bills and that. So when you're trying to keep stuff running and that and you don't have the money to buy parts and bits. What alerted you to the fact that there were cattle out at that yard? Oh, we'd heard from some people that there was cattle there. And then, so I just thought we'd go over and just have a look, just in case. So I took a couple of photos and yeah, checked for identification marks and found them on one of the beasts, the skulls. And yeah, then I looked around again and found another two. What other proof is there that they're your cattle? Well, on one skull there was our earmark and then also had our NLIS tag in it, which was yeah, registered to the station and that. So. Well, apart from that, that's all there was because there was no hide for a brand. So I just went off the earmark and read the t- NILS tag. What's the significance of that sort of identification? 
Well, it's more the the NILS tag's more for like traceability and that for if there is a disease outbreak in the Northern Territory. It's not actual official identification for a beast, but it did have our earmark, which is also another visual identification. Uh, is it likely that the whoever did this knew that they were your cattle, or are they just cattle in a yard that they? I'd say to... they were knowing that they were our cattle. Describe to me what what a what the typical relationship is between um, neighbouring stations. Oh, generally, like when you're mustering close to the boundaries, you always inform your neighbours and that because you can guarantee you're always going to get one or two neighbouring cattle and that. So, yeah, like I said, you generally just get them and send them back. And... What was your reaction when you realised that your cattle had been shot? Oh, well, I was a bit disappointed to start with, but then when I found evidence of it, the like the identification, I thought there was somewhere where we could maybe go ahead and try and get something done about it. Was it quite blatant? Oh, it looked like it. Like a lot of the slaughtered animals that I'd found had been done, like nearly looked like one a day or something for a few days. And yeah, just going in and just killing them out of the yard and dragging them out as you please, it's not on. That is Alan Martin. He's from Mount Denison Station and it's out to the northwest of Alice Springs, about 300 k's. And he was speaking there to Hugo Ricard Bell. If you want to read more about this story, there's an online yarn up online right now and you can find it if you just search for ABC Rural. G'day, I'm Chris Howie from Bindaroo Passes in the Douglas Daily. I never get to listen to the country out here because we don't have radio reception, so I download the podcast at breakfast and listen to it throughout the day. And you're listening to the Country Hour. Now, how about this? It is officially the dry season, according to the calendar anyway, but the weather doesn't always operate to the calendar. It's currently... Looks like it's bucketing down out in Palmerston, McMinn's Lagoon in the rural area. And we've had a few texts in from listeners. Uh, one listener says that it is raining in Leania. Len has texted in on 0487991057. He says he's got 38 millimetres in the gauge in Palmerston so far today. How about that? 38 mil in the dry season, hey? And it looks like it is sort of moving out to the southeast. Humpty Doo. Getting a bit wet right now. If you've got some weather reports, let us know. 0487 1057. Now, the rural area is not the only place that's been raining. There's been some heavy rain in southeast Queensland, and that in turn might have uh, some serious impacts on the veggies that you'll soon be able to buy at your local supermarket. I'll tell you more after June Cash, sorry, Johnny Cash and June Carter. Johnny Cash and June Carter there with Jackson on your Friday afternoon. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. My name is Dan Fitzgerald. Well, there's been a lot of heavy rain and flooding in Queensland, which could affect what you buy at the supermarket in the coming weeks. So at this time of the year, the Lockyer Valley, it supplies roughly 70% of the east coast of Australia's winter vegetables. And much of that region at the moment is either underwater or seriously damaged. Uh, Ali Felton-Taylor, she spoke a moment ago to one of Australia's biggest broccoli and onion growers, Troy Kolacheski, who says the crop damage in the Lockyer Valley, well, it's been quite widespread. Oh, everything will be. I mean, just not myself, but everyone in the Lockyer Valley would have 
replanted everything, all the winter vegetables, you know, which is your brassica crops, broccoli, cauliflowers, iceberg lettuce, all that sort of winter veg has been planted and it'll probably be most of it might be gone now. It's gone, but, you know, if it's not gone, it'll be challenging to grow it out just with wet weather. Has that happened before in, in your time, having these two consecutive floods? Yes, 11 and 13 were the closest to, not this close together, like we've seen, we've got March and now, but 11 and 13 were close. Well, when we had 11, we, we said that was a one in a hundred year event, <laughs> and then we had it in 13, and then we've had it in 2022 twice. So we've had supposedly a one in a hundred year flood four times in 11 years. Incredible. This this is a quite a big hit, though, in terms of this season, because, of course, February, major flooding. You've got back up and operational. And, yes. and we know the produce coming from the valley is a huge supplier at this time of yep. year. It's very hard to put a figure on these sorts of things, but how much damage in a, in a monetary sense? Oh, well, it's a lot of money. We all know what price of fertiliser, fuel and everything, you know, even the lack of labour, the, the, some of the things guys have done to secure labour, like buy accommodation and that. And, you know, if you really look at the since COVID started, we've gone through the COVID and then that's been challenging in itself. We've lost markets, you know, the markets have diminished overseas because of the lack of air, aircraft flying. And so you sort of get through all that okay and then you then you hit the flood we had in March and you would, history, you sort of would think you'd never get two of them so close together, but we have. So, yeah, no, there's a lot of things that we have got a headwind, not a tailwind at the moment. Really challenging. And in terms yeah. of what it'll mean uh, on the market, the flow through of this on yeah. shelves. Yeah, so it'll affect the shelves. It'll, it'll. I mean, you can even just not even worry about the price. It's just availability. You know, that's where that's just what happens. It just you can you can pay whatever you want to pay, but if it's not there, it's not there. So it doesn't matter. But um, yeah, no, it's been a. It'll be a blow for a lot of people. It's to get up and fix farms up after the flood and replant and yeah. I, I often joke to myself, I wish we were just a bit more lazier than what we are, that way we wouldn't have replanted too much. Oh, Troy Koloszewski, it's a, <laughs> it's a terrible circumstance you're in. For people not, not aware of the vegetable supply chain particularly, how much from the Lockyer go to supply up and down the east coast at this time of year? So, you know, how, what oh, percentage? I listen, if I had to pick a guess, I would say possibly 70% of the east coast vegetables come out of the Lockyer Valley through the winter period and um yeah so it is a it's a lot of it'll be a lot of produce i mean it was already going to be supply shortages probably just due to the first flood i guess but this will really and, and the problem we got is it's getting late to replant anything now like you really got to shift our focus into summer production now so you can nearly say winter production this year and the Lockyer valley is possibly a write-off really and has that ever happened to you before no, both most floods we've had have always been January, February, like eleven and thirteen were early in the year, so it allowed us to get replanning. But last flood in May was in nineteen ninety six. I mean, listen, time will tell in the next twelve hours how what what height it'll get to. But um, yeah, ninety six was the last May flood we had. So, and that's probably May's probably the time where most people are heavily exposed with, you know, like how much crops out in the ground and. You know, the outlay is probably at the maximum about now. In hindsight, having the flood in March probably kept people a little bit reluctant from planting too much. So if anything, if that's a blessing, that's probably what it is. We haven't sort of gone. We've we've concentrated on fixing farms up instead of planting. And Troy Koloszewski, I'm getting ahead of myself because the situation hasn't even reached a peak in the Lockyer Valley at this stage. But how much will this impact the way you farm into the future 
do you think? The short answer of that is I, I really think people will rethink their business models and, and what we're doing as horticulturalists. And I don't know, I think we'll see, see the supply chain adjust slightly or maybe more than slightly, I don't know. But, yeah, it'll certainly, you know, we, you got growers here out paying $2,000 a tonne for fertiliser and $30 an hour for labour and fuels at $2 a litre or whatever it is, maybe $1.80. But you, there's a lot more exposure today than that, what, what there was you know, 2018. So it's a bit like going to work for three years and not having an income. Not many people in the world would go to work for three years for no income, you know? Troy Kwalicheski, he's one of Australia's biggest broccoli and onion growers based in Queensland's Lockyer Valley, and he was speaking there to Ali Felton-Taylor. And that's all we had time for on the Country Hour today. Big show, hey? Northern Territory has a new Chief Minister, Natasha Files, voted in as Labor leader by her colleagues in Parliament this morning. This afternoon she's heading down to Admiralty House to be sworn in by the Administrator Vicky O'Halloran. Uh, there'll be more details on that Cabinet reshuffle next week. But for now, have a good weekend if you're getting it off and take it easy. Take it easy.